The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Okay, I love that everyone's sitting in the normal seats. That's really <laughs> sweet and all. Can we, like, come into the center a little bit? <laughs> like... No, Tom, you're, you're, you're sitting right there. Okay, so we have no music buffer for this evening. So I th- we've been, I've been told most of the people who signed up for child care is here, are here. Uh, so we are going to start. Come on, Asher. I'm just calling you out. You haven't gotten a haircut yet. This is what happens when there's no music. I just walk around and talk a lot. Has everyone gotten notes? If you want to take notes, you don't have to take notes. I just thought, hey, if you want notes, if you want um, somewhat notes for a portion of our evening. I'm going to get going. I'm only teaching from up here with the limited crowd because we are videoing this and recording it. So I'm going to stand here so the camera can pick me up. So if you might seem like, why does he seem so formal? That's it. Thanks thanks for moving, guys. Appreciate obeying the pastor. What? You went from the back row to the front row. No. No. I did. I did. Okay. Uh, I think we're ready to go. I don't see anyone else coming in. So we'll start. I don't, I, I'm, my thought process is this is going to be about an hour in length. The first hour of this is going to be somewhat me, um, you know, monologue fashion of sorts, delivering the 10 pages of notes that I have. It's probably the most notes I've ever had for any, any lesson. And then after, um, we're going to have some discussion. There's going to be some Q&A time. And uh, I, I'm saying that fearfully. I'm, I am going to be allowed to say I don't know to some of the questions that could be asked. But we are going to have a time of Q&A. Um, and then uh, we will break whenever that is done. So let me start with prayer. It's always a good thing. This is a, um, just a heavy topic, and we definitely need the spirits moving here. So let's pray, and we'll launch into this subject. Father, thank you for the church that we get to discuss um, weighty truths. Thank you as a body we can come and we can focus our attention towards the truth of Scripture, that we're not standing up, I'm not standing up here, that we're not um, coming here this evening wondering what, what my personal two cents are, but rather we get to focus our minds and hearts towards Scripture. Father, I pray that grace would reign this evening. I pray that uh, you give me clarity of thought and mind and speech as I'm discussing and um, offering these thoughts. And I pray as a church that you would help us um, be lights to a dark world as we always pray, but that you would give us um, grace and truth as we take, as I said, a very weighty subject and apply it to ourselves first and then to the community that, that surrounds us. So just be with us now in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to read a lot from my notes this evening. I'm going to try to make it not just a monologue with me standing. I had the, uh, this is, again, I'm going to set the tone appropriately with how uh, comfortable I'm going to try to be. I had this professor in school once. It was an 8 a.m. class that had a manuscript and had PowerPoint presentation, and he stood on the wall, shut the lights off, and just spent the entire time, like, reading his notes like this. I don't want to bore you guys like that, but I want to stick close so that I um, say what I mean to say and don't steer off too much. So I want to start with the question of why. Why are we having this discussion at the moment? Why are we launching into this topic and having this special seminar? 
Um, we've actually observed that many churches, many of the conferences this year, both they were last year, this year, and then even the ones that have been um, projected to come in the future, are around the topic of sexuality. And so it, it is an appropriate question of why now? Um, We've observed that many churches have had these seminars and special weekend conferences. I've listened to many of them. I can commend several of them to you afterwards if you want to listen to those. But why is it that the church, the American Evangelical Church, feels it necessary to speak up about this topic? Homosexuality, transgenderism, LGBTQIA, I think those are all the letters now, is nothing new. We've been dealing with this for a while now. So why is it that we are discussing it here and now this year? Well, these, these identity markers have been solidly solidified and presented in our culture for a while. But the reason that the church feels an urgency to speak out against it now is because the world has turned up its volume on this subject. Um, it's it really, there's an intensity in advocating for such lifestyles. And so in our culture today, the presence of these sins is not only tolerated, it's also encouraged and celebrated. The worst part of this, of the worst part of this is that the majority of these conversations are directed towards our kids. Obviously, we've seen this like in the news of how our kids are being, um, how this topic is being discussed with our kids. And so there's like an indoctrination of sorts with, with our impressionable kids. And there's a generation that their consciences have been seared to accept the unnatural realities and dishonorable passions about sexuality and gender norms. So if I can quote one pastor, just, nope, that's not the right thing to hit. If I can quote one pastor, hey, look at that. As Kevin DeYoung says, I don't often quote Kevin DeYoung, but I agree with this in this particular phrase. If, if you don't catechize your kids, the world will. We've seen that happen. We've seen the world has um, taken a direct um, line of action to try to help our kids understand these difficult truths. And unfortunately, we've seen a disparity between what the world offers as truth and what scripture offers as truth. Therefore, as a local church, we are, we've been having um, many conversations around this and we feel that it's necessary for us to step in and discuss these things. Now, one of the questions that's been raised to us is, is it really necessary to speak out about homosexuality, transgenderism, LGBTQIA? I mean, isn't, aren't those things assumed among us? One of the questions that Jeremy, or one of the conversations that Jeremy and I have had this past week is him and I had this friend who used to say that you didn't have to speak out against the sin of adultery. And then we saw that same friend about three years later commit adultery himself. So sometimes it's necessary to share the captain obvious things. And so this evening, our goal is not to be revolutionary. It's really not even to share any new things, but rather it's to go back to the mundane and the truths of Scripture and say this is what Scripture states so that we can all center our minds on that. Now, even before jumping into this, I want to uh, ask the question of how did we wind up here? How did, how did we, American and even the American church, wind up allowing for such truths to be accepted? And as I, just, as I was doing the research on that, everything that kept coming back to that was postmodernism. In the 1950s to 1970s uh, brought about the, the death of truth. Because under the guise of postmodernism, the rigidity of modernism was dismissed in favor of an anything-goes approach to subject matter, processes, and materials. Now, while postmodernism in, in itself is indefinable, we can see how the culture of postmodernism has stripped all weight and authority of the concept of truth. Truth now, the idea of truth, is subjective. All truth is truth. Your truth is truth. My, my truth is truth. Their tr truth is truth. So it is a subjective reality. 
But at the same time, no truth is truth because no truth can formally, can formally or officially be held as ultimately true. This leads us to a world where the judgment of truth comes not from comparing the actions or concepts against an agreed upon standard, but rather it's compared to the shifting emotions of the day and individual feelings. So it's because of this, of this postmodernism that we're in a space where society holds up these unnatural unions of same-sex relationships and, is, and praises those. Where credence is given to individuals who seek to change their natural pronouns. Children are allowed to grow up and they determine their own sex. And a lie that a person can be born in the wrong body is accepted and even celebrated. So I would identify that it is postmodernism that has allowed us to even be in this time and space. So what do we do from here? Where do we go? I want to, I keep pushing the wrong thing. Okay, I guess there's, I just had to test the slides for a moment to see what was going to come up. Our aim this evening is to reorient, to reorient ourselves to the truth of God's word. To what fights against postmodernism is going back to that thing that we can all stand on and say, this is truth. Because in a postmodern world, we can't put our stake in anything. As believers, as Bible-believing believers, as believers in a Bible church, our sign says community Bible church, what we can do this evening and every day is say, go back to Scripture and go, Scripture is the ultimate truth. So this evening, as we discuss all of these things, we are going to reorient ourselves to the truth of God's Word because as 2 Timothy 3.16 declares, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So unlike the subjective truth of our day, scripture is the divinely objective truth to which every creature can, can be held accountable. Now here's how we are going to um, look at this discussion. You have notes for actually the center portion, the theological foundation, but we're gonna first look at the personal, the theological, and then finally the practical. And then at the end of that, there can be some discussion. I wanna start with the personal foundation. The first thing that we have to acknowledge when we approach this discussion is the emotions surrounding it. There's a lot of emotions surrounding this topic. Um, I, just a, a confession, just so you know, I've, I've lost sleep over this because of the emotions surrounding it. Because for some it's anger, for others it's disgust, for others it's shame, for others it's, it's hatred towards it. And it, it, that could really go on. And I want to start with the personal foundation because what's been fascinating as this subject has been talked about in our church, what has come out of that is so many individuals in our congregation stating how they personally are affected by this conversation. I mean, it is their moms and dads and sons and brothers and brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and children and close friends and neighbors and coworkers and bosses that are all personally affected by this conversation. So when I start talking about homosexuality, transgenderism, LGBTQIA, all of that stuff, in your mind, you have a face, you have a person, you have a life, you have a relationship, you have a loved one. I mean, even on our elder board on Thursday night, we were discussing these things and I think the... the uh, the metric that we came up with was two-thirds of our elder board has a family member that suffers and st or struggling through this issue in some intimate way. So the first step that we have to take when we have this discussion is not one of disgust, but one of empathy 
love, and grace. So I pray that as we're going to discuss black and white realities, because we are going to look at the objective truth of Scripture, we're going to approach that first with love. Then we can, and, and we can work through it from there. Now, I also understand that um, it's a good thing and a hard thing that we all have this personal connection. It's a good thing because this will allow us to approach the subject and discussion with grace and mercy. Because when we're thinking of that person in our mind, that family member that, that you have, that friend that you have, that person that you're going to have to go home and have a conversation with, you're going to appropriately apply the grace that is needed here. That is a good thing. But it's also a hard thing. Because the word of God is not a respecter of persons. Because the word of God is not going to pull punches. Because the word of God is going to speak objective truth. And when we hear that about the person that we love, that can be really hard and it can be offensive. And in one respect, and what I've seen in society and what I pray we don't do this evening, is we approach the offense and therefore we pull the punch because we don't want to offend. But sometimes offending with the truth of God because rejection of, with God and hell is at stake is necessary. So we're going to balance that. It's good that we have that. It's hard that we have that. But we're going to understand that when we approach this whole subject matter, it's, we're not doing it in an academic pursuit. It is a very personal pursuit for us all. I've already, okay. The theological foundation. This is where your notes that I passed out take hold. Well, I'll back up because this is something that we discussed. We do not approach the subject, even from the theological foundation. We do not approach the subject to offer um, condemnation. Our goal here is not to draw the circle around people and go, you are condemned. Because let's be real, that circle has to include all of us. The goal of this discussion, the reason we're having this this evening is to offer redemption and discuss how this applies to us all. So... As I said, especially in light of postmodernism, the way that we combat that is to look at the, the objective reality of Scripture. We are going to start by looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And here's why. I have spent the last, I don't know, month, six weeks, trying to dig up all of the arguments for homosexuality and all of the sexual deviation that we see. And there are thousands of arguments. And I have listened to so many people do exegetical gymnastics trying to unpack all what various words mean in the Old Testament and offer their two cents of why, why, we, should why we should offer a new pursuit on things. And, and, and what I realized was is the way to combat all of those arguments is not to go after each and every single one, but to look at what was the perfect created order? What did that look like? What was it supposed to be? I mean, this is very much like what the FBI says that when they're trying to um, figure out the, the, the counterfeit money, you don't study the counterfeits, you study what the dollar looks like so that all of the various degrees of counterfeitness, I don't think that's a word, definitely not a word, I can't think of any other one, but when you're trying to figure out all of the various ways of, of fraud, you know what the perfect is supposed to look like, so therefore you can identify when the perfect isn't in front of you. I want to do that this evening with the subject. And therefore, I want to start with the theological foundation and how God created us to be. Because from there, we then can look at the way that the world is completely messed up and realize how far we have fallen, wow, realize how far we have 
how far we have fallen. It's been a long day. How far we have fallen and then understand where we need to go. First one, it's going to blow your mind. We're talking about, you know, extraordinary truths here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know this, right? I mean, it's like the first thing that we learned in Sunday school. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does that mean? That God is the creator and designer of all things. And if you create something, you own that thing. If you create something, you determine how that thing looks and functions and operates. And all creation is determined and created by God to live and operate as he intended. What you're going to see is all of these building upon themselves. So you might go, okay, we're starting with the foundation. Yes, we are. These are the fundamentals. But you're going to see how this all plays out in the end. Number two, man is made in God's image. If, uh, we are going to be reading a lot of scripture this evening. So if you have a Bible, whether that's a physical Bible or electronic Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1 and 2. This is where all of the, the created order comes from. Genesis 1, 26a. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Then goes on and says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Man is made in the image of God. One of the fundamental realities when it, when it comes to understanding cr the created order and man is the imago Dei, the image of God on man. N nothing else in creation has the image of God. The image of God is, is the foundational element for all of creation because both male and female are created in the image of God. It's interesting to note how it, the Hebrew wordplay, really all Hebrew and Greek wordplay are beautiful, but the Hebrew wordplay here, that when it says that the, uh, let us make man in our image, you know what that word man is? Adam. For the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the same word for man, or the same word that we get the name Adam from is actually man. Adam's name literally means man. So when it says in, in the image of us, let us make Adam. So God is saying in our image, we are going to make this creature. This Imago Dei is focused on authority and connection. The historical theology is often grounded in the image of God and mankind's superiority over lesser creatures. Given man's higher rationality and spirituality, especially man's capacity to know and worship God. No other creature can know and worship God in the same way that we can. The New Testament reflects on the divine image of God, highlighting that man has been made for covenant communion with God and righteousness and holiness. The Samago Day makes man fundamentally different from all other created things. Here's why I point this out. One of the major arguments that I found as it relates to sexuality and, and the um, changes to sexuality is individuals saying, well, we see that monkeys have homosexual relationships. We see that penguins have homosexual relationships. So therefore, it must be just a natural evolutionary process for humans, homo sapiens, to have a um, heterosexual lifestyle and then go to a homosexual lifestyle. The problem is we're not judged like any other created thing because no other person has the imago day. So the way that we formulate who we are is not based upon creation or not based upon the other created elements. It is based upon God himself. Number three, 
My, this slide's still good. Yes. Okay. Man has dominion and authority over all the earth. Genesis 2, 19 through 20 says this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every, every living creature, that was his name. The man gives names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, man's Imago Dei extends to his authority and dominion over the earth. God granted or delegated his power to Adam, the man, to name and to rule over all of his creatures. In this way, man was the vice regency over creation. You see, naming is an action of owning and declaring responsibility over. Therefore, Adam was responsible for all the creatures. We see this with even our own lives. Our parents named us. They gave us a name and inherently in giving us that name, what they, whether they signed up for it or not, they also were responsible to be our caretakers. In the same way, Adam was given authority and dominion to, and had the responsibility of being the caretaker over um, the, all, all of creation. This is why in Genesis 2.15, the Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. This is just a side note. It's interesting how many points of theological um, discussions or how many um, various theological arguments find their foundation in Genesis 1 and 2. That's why going through this and understanding what was the created order designed like, how, how would we function if there was no sin in our life is so important. Up to this point, the naming and the authority structure that God is, that God is offering, the person that God is dealing with, is Adam only. Eve doesn't exist yet. That's a, the, the implications of that are for a whole other argument, but we'll get there maybe one day. I don't want to deal with that fight now. So, number four, man and woman were divinely, equally, purposefully, and perfectly created for each other. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he sl and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed it up in, his, up in place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into the woman and brought it and brought her to the man. Men and women are unlike any other thing created in the garden. Every other thing had a match and a match had its equal and opposite. And God knew as Adam was naming all of the creatures in the garden, he's looking around going, nothing else matches me. Who am I supposed to have a relationship with? Who am I supposed to have communion with and connection with? I'm all alone. Therefore, God created a woman who was, again, divinely, equally, purposefully, and perfectly created for each other. I want to go through those words. Those words are important. Divinely, the woman was created by the hand of God just as man. So this wasn't something that Adam created for himself. This was God looked at man and said, I am going to create this helper for you. Woman in all of her splendor is crafted from the mind and hand of God. So that even goes back to the Imago Dei in both, all of mankind, but both man and woman, because God is creating both man and woman in his image. Equally made. The woman was made explicitly for and from man. Taking a rib from Adam demonstrates how man and woman are divinely knit together. They are of the same source and substance and are equal in value. So just because man was created first, you can't sit here and go, well, woman is lesser. No, they are of equal value, purposefully made. 
Woman is not a natural evolutionary adaptation of human species. Rather, the woman was created to purposefully complement man in all of his duties and requirements. The woman filled what the man lacked. That's why when, when Adam wakes up from the sleep and looks at man, he goes, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call you woman. He goes, this is what I have been waiting for. Perfectly made. The woman is exactly what man needed to fulfill all that God commanded of him. While he could name and rule over creation, he left alone was unable to complete his intended created purpose without a match suited for him. He was left alone. He's like, I can't do what you have commanded me. Woman was created to join man and thus created the perfect pairing. She is the helper perfectly fit for him. Again, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's, that is because in one flesh, you become the, the full, the perfect one flesh together. I, I understand that in the New Testament, it says gift is a single or singleness is a gift, but have you ever met a man that's never been married? He needs something. He needs somebody next to him to fulfill him and to rub the rough edges off. So together, man and woman are the, are the, the, the perfect example of what humanity is supposed to be. Fifth, the command in the created order of mankind is to procreate and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a very straightforward intent for man. I'm not going to go into that talk this evening. Together, they can fill the earth. That's what the perfect order was created to be. I know it's simple. It's, and it's these things that we can just assume, we can walk past, we can, you know, not really um, consider because we don't live in the perfect. We live in the fallen state, which is the next subject that we're going to talk about. The extent of our brokenness. This is what we live with all the time. We, we experience this. I, I don't need to actually give you these four points, but allow me to anyway. In the fall, procreation is going to be a moment of suffering. We've now moved on to Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. I wonder what the intended physical pain of childbirth is supposed to be. I don't know. I don't, I, I, it's less than what it is now. But as I was thinking about this, and I got to say this, I'm going to say this humbly, not a woman. It seems that the greatest pain in childbirth actually isn't the physical birth. It's all the other suffering that goes with it. It's the miscarriages. It's the infertility. It's the deaths. It's the struggles. It's the fact that you, you have a sinner for a child and you're a sinner. It's everything else that surrounds it. Pre-fall, there would be no troubles around pregnancies. You would carry every child the full term. You would deliver a healthy baby every single time. There would be no sadness that goes around the element of having a child. Now with the fall, our experience of childbirth is all the things I just talked about. And so many stories are in this room of that pain. It's an element of the fall that we deal with. Second thing that we see is that communion is broken between man and woman. This perfect pairing that nothing could come between. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no, there was no struggle at all. They were naked and unashamed. Now, because of the fall, there, there is this brokenness in their communion. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
the woman that was divinely, equally, purposefully, perfectly created to be the partner for her husband, there is now a riff between them. They no longer have perfect communion. They're no longer gonna be on the same page. They're no longer gonna be viewing life the same way. They're no longer going to be um, interacting uh, with mutual love, respect, honor, and care. There's gonna be struggle. Number three, man will now struggle against creation. Here's what it says in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree, and eaten of the tree in which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Man was created to have total dominion and authority over all of creation because the Lord granted that to him by delegating him that authority. Now there's going to be a struggle against it. Now work is not going to be pleasurable. Now the earth is not going to um, willingly give up its fruit in order to uh, sustain our life. Now there's going to be a struggle. It's interesting. There's a, there's a big feature that comes up in this whole discussion here of this point. The fall was the result of one creature listening to the wisdom and perspective of another creature. Eve ate first. I get that. But who's credited with creating the fall, with dooming us all to destruction? Adam. The fall was because Adam did not listen to God, did not listen to God's word, authority, perspective, truth. I mean, the same is true for Eve as well, because we can also say, I mean, how did, how did the serpent approach Eve in this way? He goes, God didn't really tell you this. You should trust your feelings more than you should trust the facts. I mean, really kind of at that level, because Satan came in and started to dig into what God had said, started to mar, what, okay, what's, what's actually the truth here? I know what God said, but is he actually going to act upon that? And so, because there was this sin, because Adam and Eve both inherently listened to the, the feelings of what's going on around instead of understanding what is the truth of God's word, man and woman fell. And then last, humanity loses access to God. Genesis 3, 23 through 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he has taken. He drove out the man to the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that took place, or that, that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So finally, no longer does man and woman have direct access to God. We're cast off. We need a mediator in order to come before the Lord. It's a pretty desperate space, but it's the space that we know. We know that we don't have access to God. We know that we live with um, conflict be between each other. We know that we struggle with childbirth and that we struggle against the ground. I mean, this is the world that we know. So we've seen what the perfect created order is supposed to be. We've seen what the fall created in all of humanity. For the sake of our discussion this evening, I do want to offer some declarations concerning sexuality 
because for the purpose of this discussion, we, we want to be clear, to, to uh, quote a good friend and elder, Danny Deffenbaugh, to be unclear, to be unkind. So we do want to offer some declarations to us all around this so that we can be on the same page of how the fall has affected our sexuality. First, God created two and only two sexes and genders at creation. He created male and female, full stop. Nothing else. There's no changing that. He created those because he created male and female at the biological level. We'll get to that. The second point says we are not able to make a distinction between biological sex and gender in search for our identity. This has been one of the big things as I've studied this, of this, this desire to separate the biological with the social. God didn't create biological and social. They're the same thing. If I can quote from a um, catechism that I would commend to you, this is the New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. The um, conference that Jeremy Brennan and I went to last week, I didn't even know this was going to come out. One of the speakers there just got done writing this catechism. And catechisms are great because it's a very point-by-point, uh, point, cut-and-dry, you know, question-answer format. And this is one of the questions in it. And so the question is, but aren't we able to make a distinction between biological sex and gender and search for our identity? The answer, no. God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of God. Again, goes back to the Imago Dei. To introduce gender as a new category of personhood, separated from the biological category of sex in pursuit of a different sexual identity, is unnatural to the created order and harmful for the purpose for which God has made us. A really big portion of this whole discussion is going to be we, we are best when we operate as God intended us to operate. We flourish when God intends us to operate. So going back to how has God made us to be, that's how we want to operate. So continuing. God determines the biological sex at the cellular level of every individual and there's no way to alter his determined will. I, I, I hate to even go there, but again, to, to be unclear, to be unkind, if, if somebody wants to surgically or medically alter who they are, that does not change who they are before God. They are who God created them to be because God is the creator and he creates every single person at the cellular level. Marriage is a monogamous relationship between one biological man and one biological woman. God does not permit sexual relationships outside of marriage. This whole idea of sexuality, it, I, I know that I started with homosexuality, transgender, transgenderism, and LGBTQIA, but we are all wrapped up in this because we are all marred at a sexual level. Adultery, lust, pornography, all of this stuff is wrapped up because we view our equally and opposite created individual and human, male and female, with the wrong lens. We all have to come under and submit ourselves to the truth of God's word, recognizing that because of the sin that is inside of us, we are approaching our fellow human with the wrong intentions. So here, God doesn't permit sexual relationships outside of marriage because why? Marriage is created between one man and one woman whom he and divinely put together. The rightness and wrongness of sexuality is not determined by feelings. Every marriage, regardless of how good it is, will come to a point when they will say, I just don't feel like I want to love you anymore. I just don't feel like I should be married to you any longer. 
I just feel like I should be able to go satisfy my desires in this other way. But feelings do not determine the rightness and wrongness of things. Then last, and really this is a catch-all, the fall has corrupted humanity in every conceivable manner. All of us are affected in some way, shape, and form by the list that we just read. And it's from that perspective that we have to move on. Because when we start talking about redemption, as we're going to here in a minute, all of us need it. And when, when we compare ourselves with God, we're all equal, completely dead, hopeless, and in need of him. So yeah, maybe at a human level, we might be able to say, well, I don't have as far to go as you do. Maybe. But at the divine level, which everything we've been talking about now is between us and God, we are all the same, dead in our trespasses and sins. So, so let's talk about the good stuff. That's the hard stuff. Let's talk about the good stuff. A restoration in Christ. Redemption is offered to all indiscriminate of sexual sins. One of the most heinous things that come out of this discussion is this idea that if you struggle in some, with some particular sin, to um, apply it here, some, some particular sexual sin, that you are beyond God's grace. Christ can save the worst of us because according to Christ, we are all the worst. If he could save the perfect choir boy that has done nothing wrong or the absolute ax murderer that's done everything wrong, when, when standing before the Lord, we are equal. We are equally in need of God's grace. And so redemption is offered to us all. If anyone is ever gonna say, I'm too far gone, I've done too much, they don't understand the gospel. And probably what they don't understand is how we are all fallen. So if you hear anything from the last two sections of the perfect order and the fallen nature, what I want you to hear is I am deeply, intimately broken because of the fall and I am in desperate need of grace. And so redemption is offered to us all. This is Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice Paul doesn't put you know, footnotes on that, except for the blank and the blank and the blank. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Notice that he was speaking about us universally. We are all broken and all in need of Christ's grace. Second, redemption offers us a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we've quoted often around here. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old, that old way of living, that broken lifestyle that we all had brokenness that we lived in, that's passed away. The separation that we had with God as Adam and Eve walked out of the garden and the cherubim stood there in our path so that no one could come to him, that's passed away. The oldness where we no longer could interact with each other with God in mind and as we were designed to um, interact, that's passed away. Redemption does not add Christ to our life. It's not Jesus 
plus your old way of living equals salvation, or Jesus plus something. Rather, Christ makes you new. This is the picture that we have in, 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 in baptism. The picture is when you go down, you die just like Jesus died. And when you come back, you don't come back with your dead body. You come back up with a brand new body that God gives you. And that is a brand new identity. So when God looks at you in Christ, he does not see the, the wickedness, the disparity, the brokenness that you have. He sees Christ's righteousness declared upon you. So your identity that you are searching for, if you are in Christ, is simply Christ. It's been interesting that so often what people are looking for when they start going down these roads of various sexual sin is identity. They're just trying to figure out who they are. They're just trying to do something that makes them feel like the way that they should feel. I mean, and we do, this is, I mean, this is at the heart of, like, adultery. Why does one, one individual run off with somebody else's spouse or have some other relationship with somebody else that's not, that's not their spouse? Why? Because they're trying to feel something so that they can be that thing. I, I would, this is off the top of my head, but I would say almost every sin is that way. I'm just trying to feel the way that I should feel. But the gospel steps in and goes, okay, stop trying to gain that through sin and destruction. Allow me to give you a new identity that you so desperately want, and it's in Christ. So the fall causes, not to, it causes us to look not to God for our identity, but to ourselves. But as creatures, with the Imago Dei, we were designed to draw our meaning, identity, and satisfaction from God. We were designed to have a relationship with him. So when we don't have a relationship with him, our inherent struggle is I'm trying to find that relationship that's ultimately going to satisfy. That's why when you see an individual that does not have a relationship with God, they are trying a, a litany of things to, to fill, I'm going to sound a little baptist to here, to fill that God-shaped hole in their life. But when they finally find God, they, they have that reconnection because as creatures, we were designed to be cre connected to our creator. So redemption offers us that new identity or rather the reestablishment of the relationship that we were designed to have. Finally, redemption offers restoration or renewal is what I have in my notes. If you have a Bible, I'm gonna read from Romans 8. We're almost done with the section, I promise. Romans 8 is such a great chapter. Our students are actually going through it in youth group, which I'm excited about. It's talking about life in the spirit. It says this in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jumping to verse 12. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are held by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Luther described the earthly experience in Christ well by describing us as simultaneously saint and sinner. We are as new creations, as new creations are living in this body of flesh that continually lies to us and points us away from Christ in a litany of ways. And yet we are renewed in the spirit, being born again to a new life. Our chains for sin and death have been broken. And we are being made more and more into the image and likeness of the Savior. Redemption offers us this ability to live in a renewed manner. Redemption offers us for the first time to live as God created us to live. I started with Genesis 1 because that is when we are living as close to Genesis 1 as we can. I get it. We're in a broken world of sinful bodies. We're simultaneously saint and sinner. I understand that. But when we are reorienting our minds back to the created order and living from that sense and living from that state, we're living as God created us to live. What does redemption look like this side of heaven? That's one of the big questions that people have asked me and one of the big questions that I've, uh, I have considered myself. What does redemption actively, boots on the ground, look like this side of heaven? Well, I want to offer another biblical description and biblical category that is regeneration. And regeneration is inseparable from the effects of the Spirit. What are those effects? Well, we can spend a lot of time talking about those. I mean, some of those effects is faith and justification, adoption and sanctification and perseverance and union with Christ and glorification. But one of them that keeps coming up in so many discussions surrounding this and even just surrounding sanctification and life in Christ in, in general is repentance. What does repentance look like this side of heaven? What does repentance look like as it relates to redemption? And repentance, if I can quote, I'll put this up now. If I can quote the really smart Sinclair Ferguson, is a characteristic of the, no, that's not what I said. Repentance means returning to the spirit of creatureliness before the creator and recognition of his mercy to penitent believers. Redemption this side of heaven looks like us continually understanding, I gotta turn back. My flesh tells me to live differently. I, I, I need to, to fight against my sin and reorient my mind towards the truth of the gospel, towards Christ, towards the way that he has designed me to live and called me to live and therefore live in light of that. Repentance is a characteristic of the whole life, not just a single moment. There's one last discussion that, or one last foundation that I want to offer on this theological foundation before we get to the practical side. I've got even more reading once we get there. And that is, how do we use the law with this whole discussion? And again, this is not, I, I know it's Christian ethic and sexuality, but this could be Christian ethic and anything. How do we use the law? Well, without a proper understanding of the law, we either wield it only as a weapon of misery or strip it of all of its power. Here's what I mean by that. When we have these discussions, we, we speak in law terms. You should do this and you shouldn't do that. And again, we're dealing with a loved one in our mind. So this is where it's, it's good and hard. It's good because it's the truth of God's word. And so we want to apply it. It's hard because there's another person whom we love at the other end of that thing. 
i.e. the law. And so if we don't understand how to use the law rightly, we either bash people over the heads with it. And another quote that we've used, I actually can't quote this one, but another um, uh, thought that, that, that we've used in our, in our elder meetings is we might be right, but are we being a jerk about it? That's using the law as a weapon of misery. Yeah, we might be right, but are we just killing you with it? Or the other side is, are we just taking the teeth out of the law and the law was designed for a purpose? Are we laying it aside and becoming antinomian? So how do we use the law? Well, there's three ways to use the law. There's three ways that we use the law because we are a reformed church. This is a reformed understanding of the law, the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is pedagogical, whereby sinners are driven to Christ. This is applied strictly to unbelievers. This is where if you walk up to somebody and you know they are not a believer or whether you find out they're not a believer, they're not professing Christ and you have, you're having a law conversation with them, you are using the pedagogical use of the law. And what is the pedagogical use of the law designed for? For them to understand the separation that they have with God. For them to be broken under the weight of the law. For them to see their need for a savior. Now, this is hard. Again, I know because there's, there's a person at the other end of this whole conversation that you're thinking about. But for them to realize how far off they are from, the, from their, um, create, their, the way that God created them to live. And when they are feeling the weight of that law, when they come to that point that we have all come to in running to Christ and they go, I can't do anything. Then you go, let me tell you about grace. But the law is there for them to feel that weight on their shoulders because if they never feel the weight on their shoulders, they can't have grace. Because what in the world is grace there for if you don't understand the, the, the weight that's there? Second use of the law, the civil application of the law, is the application of the moral law to public or civil life. If you will, this is the easiest use of the law because this is the one that, um, with a couple of exceptions of like psychopaths, uh, we all agree upon you don't have to teach a kid that murder is wrong because they see their, the first moment they hear about murder, they go, there's something inside of them that goes, that's wrong. So the simple use of the law is, is, is to, to orient um, how creatures are to live. It's again, the one that we can all agree upon because there are these natural laws that we see all over our globe that um, uh, transcend tribe, tongue, and nation because we just understand this is how God created us to live as creatures. And then the third use of the law. This is strictly for believers. So if the first use is for unbelievers, the third use is for believers. It's the moral or normative use of the law. The moral law for believers is normed and shaped by God's moral law. It reminds us how we were designed to live. In Christ, as we've been talking about this, obviously on Sunday morning recently, but there's a way in which Christians should live and how should we live? We should live as God designed us and called us and created us to live. We should live in harmony with one another. We should understand that marriage is, is, is a, a faithful monogamous union between a man and a woman that is forever because it is a covenant that is designed by God. There, there are these laws that we all hold on to because that is how God created us to live. And as a Christian, when I look at the law, no, it does not condemn me because Christ paid for that. But that also doesn't mean that we just lay that aside and don't do anything with it. We look at the law and we go, this, if I'm going to honor God with my life and if I'm going to have, I hate to even say it this way, the, I want to say the best life now, but I can't even say it that way, so I didn't say this. But if I want to have a, a joyous life now, 
I'm going to look at what the law tells me, that it is best to not murder, not commit adultery, not envy, not covet, uh, n- don't bear false witness, um, keep the Lord's name, and don't, not keep the, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and the rest of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Theological foundation done. I've said that so we can say this. What do we do with the subject matter of Christian ethic and sexuality? How do we deal with the dysfunction and the sin of sexuality being marred in our lives, all of our lives? No one gets off scot-free because we're all broken at our core. If you plopped any of us down next to Adam and Eve in the garden, and on our best day, they would look at all of us and go, what in the world are you doing? I want to read, though, a passage that is hard to read. But it's how Paul discussed sexuality, sexual sin in the church. And the reason that I want to go here is because all of these seminars, all of these conferences that have been discussed is dealing with what do we do with sexual sin in, in the church. And again, a discussion I was having with Jeremy is it seems like everyone is looking for the, the here are the four steps that, that you take and, and here are the, here, here's, here's exactly what has to happen in every situation and none of them ever have the here are the four steps that everyone apply and you'll be good to go. None of them walk away with a very clear-cut, easily transferable diagram that we could just say, well, they use this paradigm, so we're going to use this here. And we can't do the same. But what we can do is look at what Scripture says about how it deals with sin. With, and because our conversation is there, how it deals with sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6, as I said, is a hard chapter, but it actually follows an even harder chapter. Because 1 Corinthians 5 is the story where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he goes, hey, I've heard something about you. I've heard that you've allowed a man to have an inappropriate relationship, sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. What in the world are you doing? Can you kick that man out of the church because he should not be named among you? And we see in 2 Corinthians that when this individual felt the weight of the law, This is where the law is a good thing. When he felt the weight of the law, what did he do? He came running back. Because when an individual feels that they're separated from the body of Christ, separated from Christ, they do run back to him, to God. But then Paul speaks broadly about sexuality in the church. I want to read it. And then I have some other thoughts about it. And some other thoughts about sexuality. I'm going to read the entire chapter. When one of you has a, grieving, a grievance against another, he does, dare, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing before the church? Thus, this, I say this 
I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers against the law, uh, against brothers and that before the unbeliever? To have lawsuits at all. Am I in the right chapter? Yes, I am. I'm going to start in verse 9. I'm sorry. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord because of one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know? that your body is a temple of the living God within you, whom you have from God? Are you not your own? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I have to say that as I was preparing for this and I read that chapter, it's harsh. In my flesh, it's harsh. Because I have those people in mind. I'm like, geez, Paul, lighten up a bit. Geez, Paul, have some compassion and empathy and grace. Geez, Paul, you gotta actually say it that way? Like, could you, could you say it a, a little differently? But then I thought, why is he speaking in this way? Why when he speaks about Sexual immorality, is he so dogmatic? And it's because, I think in this way, he understands the holiness of God and is singing the holiness of God and is singing the effects of that sin in a deeper way than I would see it. For him, I come at it and I'm seeing the person whom I love going, Jeez, can we ease up a little bit? He is seeing the law, the full weight of the law, God's glory, how God created us and, and the holiness of God and going, wow, you're marring something so beautiful. The image of God, the Imago Dei was created for something far more glorious than what we do. That was the first thought when I read that chapter. Here's the second thought. There's a lot of grace in this chapter because of how he starts it when I finally got to it. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. As we've been discussing this topic as elders, that's the sentiment that keeps coming out. And such were some of you. It's so easy when we start talking about sins to think about it in an us and them paradigm, to think about it without empathy. Because without empathy, what you hear is they are sinners and I am not. They are hopeless, I had a chance. They're beyond God's grace, thank you for my grace. But Paul says such were some of you. And, and elsewhere, he goes, I'm the chief of sinners. So I, I'm not even indicting Paul here for not understanding the weight of his sin. But what this actually sh shares is, don't have that named among you, but you were this. And you are testimony of God's grace because of God's grace in your life. When you turn this whole discussion upside down, what you realize is that we are all guilty of breaking the law. No one gets out alive. No one cannot rely upon God's grace. The other place that I thought about going to is Matthew 18. Not the church discipline, not the church discipline passage, though I think it's appropriate that that is also in Matthew 18, but the parable that Jesus offers about the unforgiving servant, you know, the one who has like the, the debt that he could never repay if he possibly worked all of his life because it was this like extraordinarily great payment. That's why Jesus, whatever the numerical number was, I mean, it's like, there's no way that you'd ever get that off. And the, and the king comes in and says, okay, I'll let you off. I'll offer grace. I'll pay for your debt. And the unforgiving servant then goes out and finds the dude who owes him like 20 bucks. He goes, pay up. And this poor beggar's like, I don't got 20 bucks. I'm trying to eat today. And he throws, he, he hauls him off and throws him into prison. When we approach this subject from the position of such or some as you, from the perspective of we're all offered an immense weight of grace that we could never possibly understand, the way that we then approach that sinner that's struggling maybe with a different sin than us, but the same weight of sin, instead of shame and anger and guilt and hatred and disgust, we go, man, I'm sorry that that's how the fall affected you. That changes it. It changes from how could you to, I'm sorry that that's how the fall affected you. By the way, the answer is the same. Christ, Jesus, grace, repentance, faith. It just looks different. And I've, I've at times struggled to get here of, okay, it's a different kind of sin, but it's the same deviation against God's created order. So how do we respond to the next person who's struggling with this sin? I think it is empathy. Empathy from a, I understand you because I'm just as broken as you. I understand you because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what we looked at from the fall. None righteous, no, not one. None who seek after God, none who does the right thing. I mean, who are we to say, look at you, 
you're a, a centimeter behind me or whatever. When we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we all fall short. But how do we balance, actively balance, in our lives, in our church, the line between love, grace, and acceptance of the individual when there's a sin involved? How do we actively balance that? How do we allow, as a believer, to see a sin in, in, in an individual a sin that clearly breaks God's law, a sin that clearly goes against God's created order, and approach them, not step away from them. There's one thing that I've, I've seen the church do more often than not, not I, I, maybe our church, I hope not, but definitely the church as a whole, is that we've walked away from people in need. The sermon that, one of the sermons that's impacted me the most already in John is the woman at the well. If there was any individual that, that, that Jesus would not want to be associated with, who would it be? A Samaritan, adulterous woman. And what does he do? He walks up to a Samaritan, adulterous woman and says, can I have a drink? Can I interact with you at just a very human level? I mean, truly God, truly man, human, but at a very human level? Can we sit and eat together? Can we have a conversation? Can we dialogue? Can we at least understand that the connection that we have is we're human? One of the books that's impacted me the most on this subject is a book from Rosaria Butterfield. And I now forget the name because I only have her name in here. I forget the book title. There's a story though. She's a, she was a... Um, uh, she was a liberal professor lesbian that was like actively trying to push the liberal lesbian feminist line and, and ideology. And she wrote this essay against the church, against conservatism, against biblical truth, all this stuff. She wrote this essay and she got this letter back from this um, uh, uh, reformed pastor. And the way that she tells the story is, it was very clear he didn't agree with me, but he didn't just say, screw you, go away. It was love. It was grace. It was acknowledgement. There was, there was this compassion for this individual. And she, she ends up having this relationship with this reformed pastor. They, they, she says, I, I could be no, we were on the opposite ends of the world in every single aspect. But what she says is that this individual accepted her as a person but didn't approve of her sin. That balance is so important. Accepting the individual as a person. I see you as a fellow creature because we all went through the fall. I see that you're marred in a different way than I am, but we're all marred. I see that I can love you at the human level, but my standard for truth is different. I can't accept your sin but I'm gonna love you in spite of your sin. And I'm gonna love you by pointing out your sin. Why? Because I, this individual truly believed that the best way to live was one that was in accordance with God's law. 
I guess the last words that I will have, and then we'll open up to some questions. That could be interesting. Be gentle, gracious. Is any moment like this when we begin to look at what the world was created to be, what the fall, how the fall has affected us, understanding our redemption in Christ, is a good moment for all of us to recognize that we are in continual need of God's grace. And if the Lord opened up all of our lives, there would be something, let's be real, there'd be hundreds of things that he would look at and go, how could you? How could you live with that lie? How could you believe that? How could you follow that? How could you be so blind to the truth? And so when we're discussing the Christian ethic and sexuality, the main ethic that I think that needs to reign here is grace. Because if we have been saved, if we have been forgiven and um, amazing debt, one that we could never repay, who are we to start pointing our fingers at fellow Christians and saying, fellow humans rather, and saying, well, because you have a debt as well, I can't love you. I, I know I covered a lot. I could say even more. I didn't, I didn't stick as close to my notes as I wish I would have in some ways. With that, let's say for 15 minutes, or if there's no questions, we can close it down now. What questions, if any, do you guys have on the subject? And I reserve the right to say I don't know. We can cut the recording if that would make it easier. I can get off the stage if that would be better. Love is, yeah. How, how could love be wrong? The answer I would offer to that is um, I would recognize the feeling. The feeling is valid. The, fe the feeling of that love to be pulled in that way is valid. We have to go back to how did God create us? I love my sin. There's something in all of us that we love that we know we should not do. The hard part is when you do look at, it, at an individual when it's, a, when it's a sexual sin, you go, but does that mean that I, I'm not allowed to love the person whom I want to love? And my answer to that would be the love that you would ever have for a person that, you, that God has not desired you to love will never be sufficient and is truly insufficient compared to the love that he created you to love, which is the opposite gender or sex. That's a big one. That, that, that is one of those things. That this is where, I, that's hard to say. Because yeah, the, the, the human inside of me goes, yeah, of course, I want everyone to have their, to experience their love. Who, I mean, I, I feel like a jerk saying that. But again, I gotta go back to, okay, if we're creatures, if we're gods, and he gets to design us 
I'd rather follow his created order than follow my sinful feelings. Thank you, Jeff. I don't uh, I, I didn't say this in the f- formal section because I actually struggle to, to preach a tagline because it's not the inspired word you know we say we're ordinary people extraordinary grace I struggle with, with the words these people those people with any sin because we're those people Such were some of us. And ordinary people, extraordinary grace, it's not inspired. I think it's true to the text, but it's not inspired. I think what it really means is we're ordinary people who've been extraordinarily changed by an extraordinary grace and can look back and go, the the failures, struggles, addictions, sins, dysfunctions, whatever word you want to use that we see out there are in here. And yet, what we have in here, that the world does not see because it's blind and darkened to it, is an extraordinary grace placed upon us. Where, where we've, we've been restored to God, we have a new identity, we have a relationship, and we can continually turn in repentance and go, Lord, I am not acting as you created me to, to act. I'm not living in accordance with your law. I'm not honoring you with, with my life. And so it is a, you know, our, we, our church is just as much the First Corinthians church. Such were some as you. Like, yeah. So it's, there's no us and them. It's no these people and those people and us. It's us, ordinary people, who all look to an extraordinary grace. Hang on, you're an elder. You're not a hold up. El- you, you can make statements. You can't make, you can't ask questions. <laughs>
Thanks for the softball. Appreciate that. Um, what's evangelism look like? I'm talking about it. In Sunday school. Maybe the Lord will use the avenue of the sexual dysfunction, whatever that is, pornography, I mean, you know, having an affair, something like that to show somebody that they're in need of God's grace. Maybe that's going to be the end. Maybe not. Maybe it's some other thing. I cheated on my taxes. And we go, well, let me tell you about how God said don't lie. And that's their pathway in. I, I, it's a, uh, so the first thing with unbelievers is, is that balance of do they feel the weight of their sin? Do they feel their... Do they come to understand that they need something outside of them? When I say the weight of their sin, they might, I, I, that's Christian language I know, but it's like, will they have this moment of like, I'm not okay, and I'm searching for something that will make me okay. And we see how that works. It's just they're running down these pathways of what's going to satisfy me. Then we say, let me tell you somebody who will satisfy you perfectly because you were created to have a relationship with him. Let me tell you about Jesus. Maybe, again, it's going to be something sexual in nature that's going to be used to bring them there. Maybe it's not. But it's for them to feel the weight of the law and for them to see the amazing grace of Christ. Would you then say that it might even be beneficial in, uh, in an evangelistic setting that you don't even bring up the topic of sexuality with regard to their sexuality is even aberrant, they have to agree with Scripture to begin with that they are sinners. Yeah. You could make sense, yeah. Um, changing that from homosexual to heterosexual still winds them up in hell. Right. <laughs> so if that's the, if your goal is to um, reform their life through legalism, great, you have a Pharisee. If your goal is to get, if, if the goal is for them to be transformed by Christ, who struggles like the rest of us do, simultaneously saint and sinner, then you have a trusting believer. And once we have that trusting believer, we can apply these principles to. Because now you're saying you believe in Christ. Mm hmm. Okay, I said 7 o'clock, I'm going to pray. If you guys have other questions, you can talk to any of the elders. I'm going to put all of us on the spot. I think we're all here. Um, and you can also talk to me. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that as a church, we wouldn't have the us and them paradigm. And that we would understand that we are all broken and continually in need of your grace. Lord, help us to be pictures of your grace to walk in such a way that that is what propels us that we're different we're different from the world around us 
and at the same time, we're different from even the, the, the legalism that can reign around us. Lord, for those who are struggling with these concepts, um, here or listening in the room, as we take this discussion and we apply it to whomever that individual is in our mind, give us grace and peace and empathy and compassion. Lord, help us first to repent ourselves and understand that the grace that we're offering is the grace that we all need. Thank you for this moment. In your son's name, amen. Your grace.